Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankin on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayre on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Every time I'm in the position to open a person's skull, it's extraordinary in the sense that this is where we live. And what you see is these hills and valleys that are sort of pinkish, and you see blood vessels coursing over the surface. And there's a membrane where fluid is and it's pulsating. And that pulsating is matching the rhythm of your heart. And to think that within that is who each of us is. Stanford brain surgeon James Doty is also a leading convener of research on compassion and altruism. He's on the cutting edge of knowledge of how the brain and the heart, understood both physically and metaphorically, talk to each other, and how we might even as a species begin to take charge of our tribal fight-or-flight instincts, the baggage of evolution. The backstory of James Doty's passions is told in his memoir, Into the Magic Shop. In the summer of 1968, in the throes of a hardscrabble, perilous childhood, he wandered into a magic shop and met a woman named Ruth, who taught him what she called another kind of magic that freed him from being a victim of the circumstances of his life and that he now investigates through science. Practices like relaxing the body to calm the mind, of self-control and setting intentions, and compassion towards oneself and others. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. James Doty is senior editor of the recently released Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. I interviewed him in 2016 when his memoir was new. As it begins, he is a panicked, disheveled, and unsmiling adolescent, in part because one of his teeth had been knocked out when he was a child and grown back crooked and brown, and his parents could not afford to fix it. So I almost always start my conversations by inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. And sometimes it's a story of a religious upbringing. It really occurs to me as I read your story, that the spiritual background of your childhood had a lot of despair and deprivation in it and and the kind of spiritual fallout of that. I don't know. How would you start to, you know, that question about the spiritual background of one's childhood is not necessarily a sweet spiritual thing. Well, I think you're right. I, I think for many people, what brings them to a place of being spiritual is actually deprivation and suffering. And uh, one of the challenges for me, which made it more difficult, was that I was self-aware enough as a child that I couldn't understand how people could be suffering and individuals not intervening, or even how I could be in a situation where I was suffering or my family was suffering, Mm -hmm. and there didn't seem to be a way out. Yet there were other people who seemed to have things going well for them and uh, to be connected and to, if you I, I use the term successful, mm-hmm. and that incongruity or paradox was painful for me. And let's, I mean, let's, you know, your father was alcoholic, your, your mother was incapacitated and depressed, and it sounds like you often were getting into fights, kicked out of school, often hungry. Um, you slapped a nun once. I have to say that was a little shocking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
well, you know, it's interesting because um, I had transferred to the school, this Catholic school, because my father actually had gotten a job there, although it was very brief employment. Uh, but as a result, it allowed me to go to the Catholic school. The problem was Catholic school was multiple grades ahead of the school I had attended, mm. and I was suddenly thrown into this difficult environment, and I did not know how to behave in that environment. And this particular nun assumed I had done something wrong when, in fact, I had done nothing wrong and just walked up to me and literally slapped me, which I had never had that done to me before, at least uh, in that context. And and my reaction, just as a person uh, yeah. <laughs> who has been in fights, was to hit them back. And uh, <laughs> that, that was my last day in Catholic school. <laughs> okay. So it was a hard beginning, a hard backdrop. And then you do have this, dare I say, magical story of being introduced also at the, you know in that pivotal time of adolescence to a new way to experience yourself to calm yourself amidst that extreme chaos of your childhood and even to begin to reimagine and shape your life and it it happened when you walked into you kind of wandered into a magic shop right yeah i lived in the high desert lancaster california and i was beginning to go down the path of um, being a delinquent yeah. I just fortuitously or serendipitously walked into a magic shop for the purpose of actually buying a new plastic thumb uh, that I was using to do tricks with. And I meet this woman who I actually describe as sort of this earth mother type. She's yeah. wearing a, a muumuu with this flowing gray hair and uh, she's just somewhat overweight and she has this radiant smile. And amazingly, she has nothing to do with the magic store. She is simply the owner's mother who happens to be sitting there while he's running an errand. And she's and visiting, right? She's just visiting for six weeks. Exactly. Just uh, there for the summer. Yeah. There's there's so much that's so amazing about this story. But there's a passage that really struck me where she's – and I think maybe it was that very first day that you wandered in and, and she kind of said uh, to you, you know – or you were having a discussion with her about, you know, why do magic tricks work? And there you were talking about the the traditional magic tricks. and And she said to you, the brain, as busy as it can be, is actually very lazy – this is why magic tricks work. And yes, magic works because people are so easily distracted. But she said, they're not distracted by hand gestures. Most people who are watching a magic show aren't really there watching the magic show. They are regretting something they did yesterday or worrying about something that might happen tomorrow. So they're not really at the magic show to begin with. So how could they see the plastic thumb at all? <laughs> Just such a fascinating diagnosis of uh, I don't know you know kind of Buddhist psychology I mean kind of and all these things we're learning to understand even better now through science. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a study that was done that showed that the average person almost eighty percent of the time they're not focused on the present; they're focused on exactly that regret about the past or anxiety about the future, and when your attention is in those places, you can't give your full attention to even what's happening to you at that moment, and it limits what you can accomplish in that moment. Unfortunately, it's a horrible distraction, and it, again, limits us to the connections we are able to make and actually even who we are. And it's uh, the techniques that she taught me and my own experience since then have just shown me the difference because it's like suddenly you realize that you have been wearing glasses that have been fogged up and you take them off and there's a vibrancy, the colors are different, the interaction is different, and that's what being present offers you. And so you have said, um, you've written, the brain is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen and to explore its mysteries and find ways to heal it is a privilege I have never taken for granted. We all have brains, but most of us have never seen them. Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about the beauty of the brain that you are privileged to see. Well, it is amazing. And obviously I do this job of being a neurosurgeon every day, but yeah. every time I'm in the position to, I hate to say, open a person's skull, 
it's extraordinary in the sense that this is where we live. This is us. And when you open the covering of the brain, the dura, and what you see is these hills and valleys, if you will, that are sort of pinkish, and you see blood vessels coursing over the surface, and there's a membrane that's sort of sometimes cloudy, other places clear where fluid is and it's pulsating, and that pulsating is matching the rhythm of your heart. Hmm. And to think that within that is who each of us is and that one event could occur and you're not how you were. Yeah. I mean, you have also in your years, your decades in this field, you know, in fact, one of the things that Ruth, your teacher in the magic shop, was teaching you is something we now call neuroplasticity. And yet we didn't that word did not exist in nineteen sixty eight. And then and that that is this simple and astonishing idea that our brains can change across the lifespan and we can change our brains through our behavior. Um, you must have watched that discovery and the naming of this with a, a kind of sense of homecoming, I'm imagining. No, that's exactly right, because as you point out, I mean prior to that we used to think that the brain and the neurons it was all immutable and nothing could be changed. And really, the gift that Ruth gave me was my first experience with uh, neuroplasticity. I mean, fundamentally, in the six weeks that I interacted with her, what she taught me truly rewired my brain. And as I tell people prior to that, I felt like a leaf being blown by an ill wind. Yeah. I had just no control over anything, I, and, and th events would happen, and uh, I couldn't do anything about them. And I felt, and I think it was in fact reality, that at that point when I met her, I had limited to no possibilities. And after that six-week period of time, I suddenly had this vision that Anything and everything was possible. And what happened to me? And, I, and, and that, that vision of possibility was so strong and so deep and so powerful that it was absolutely amazing. And the thing is, though, that my own personal circumstances fundamentally did not change at all. I went right, home to the same- for years, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with neurosurgeon James Doty, who also directs Stanford's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. You say this interesting thing that you say that the brain doesn't distinguish between an experience that is intensely imagined and an experience that is real, and that the brain will always choose what is familiar over what is unfamiliar, which becomes an, such an amazing way to think about the point of practicing, that you make another kind of presence, another kind of being in the world, familiar to your own body, to your own mind. Exactly. In fact, when studies have been done uh, utilizing different types of measuring devices such as functional magnetic resonance imaging or EEG, we see that if you are thinking of doing an action, that part of your cortex starts being stimulated. And in fact, studies have shown that even if you think about working out, those muscles will actually start responding as if you're working out. Oh, I kind of wish so, you hadn't told me that one. <laughs> You're going to stop working out. <laughs> Just going to sit and think about it. Yeah. It sounds like a good shortcut. <laughs> it's not quite as effective. <laughs> but that is amazing. No, and it's uh and and this is uh again what people don't appreciate is really the power of their intention to yeah. change everything. So, you point out that um 
at the beginnings of science as we know it in Egypt and Greece, the brain was viewed as pretty uninteresting, and it was the heart that was considered the seat of intelligence and consciousness. And one of the frontiers you work on now is how we are understanding the myriad ways the brain and the heart communicate and, in fact, work back and forth on each other. And, in fact, although for us and for you in particular, you know, we, we are understanding just the incredible mystery and majesty of the brain, we're also, again, but in a very new way from ancient Egypt, understanding the heart as an organ of intelligence. Um, that's very interesting for me to to read about, but I, I'm not sure I'm saying it correctly. So, No, I think you're saying it exactly correctly. I, I think that, in fact, poets and uh, have for you know hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, talked about this connection. And in fact, I tell a story about how Richie Davidson, who's also a neuroscientist. Yes, and he's been on was, the show, and he's the one who really, he's well, he's one of the people who helped name neuroplasticity by working, by studying yes. meditating monks, yeah. Exactly. But in the process of that study, and and he was actually trying to examine compassion, and he had them wear the CEG hat or cranial cap, and he told these monks that he was uh, going to be studying compassion, and they all started laughing at him. Yeah. And it was this understanding that deep emotions are expressed in the heart and that there is this, if you will, mind-heart connection that's extraordinarily powerful. And we now know through anatomy and a variety of studies that there's immense amount of neural innovation that comes from the brain, the brainstem into the heart. And it's a two-way street. And they can have powerful effects on each other. Yeah. I mean, one of the pieces that you describe that that you needed more life to learn was, in fact, the work of truly opening your heart. You know, how does the scientist in you understand what's happening when you open your heart to... You know, one place you said is, when we go inward and our heart is open, we will connect with the heart, and the heart will compel us to go outward and connect with others. You know, as a species, we fundamentally evolved to care and nurture initially our nuclear family, but ultimately our uh, hunter-gatherer tribe. And that has imbued us with certain neural connections. And what I mean by that is that to have what we call theory of mind, to have uh, abstract thinking and complex language, which are really what in many ways define us as a species, it ultimately required that our offspring be cared for for a decade and a half, maybe even two, after gestation, unlike other species where the offspring just run off into the forest. And as a result, there had to be these very, very powerful pathways that bonded us with our offspring. So these neural pathways result in us feeling good when we connect and making our physiology work better. And in fact, a number of studies have been done where people have been put in isolation or have been alone for periods of time and their world completely falls apart. I give a talk about the difference between what I call transformation which oftentimes we get with just a a mindfulness practice of attention and focus, but you cannot have transcendence, which is this sense of meaning in your life unless you take this journey outward, and this is a journey of connection to others. Because when you connect with others and you have an open heart and you embrace the other as you— your physiology works at its best. Mm. Right. So so we're living into that knowledge. We're learning, it seems, to claim that about ourselves. But but we also work, as as you've said, just also in this conversation with, you know, what you've called the baggage from evolution, which is fight or flight, 
and the impulse towards tribalism. And we see those dynamics at work in our workplaces and geopolitically. I mean, th- this is this human struggle. And we're seeing it playing out right now in the political arena. Yeah. And we're seeing it playing out in different uh, parts of the world. And this is, you know, my own belief is that it is an understanding of this reality that is ultimately going to define whether our species survives or not. The problem is that by the nature of the baggage that we were just talking about, we are oftentimes easily put into a position of being fearful because when we're fearful, what happens? We have a tendency to shut down. We don't want to have new experiences. We want to have familiarity, which is typically being with people who look like us, act like us, who think like us. And when you shut everything down, it does give you a sense of being safe, but it also keeps you chronically on pins and needles wondering if you're going to be attacked. And of course, that's not a healthy way to live. And from a physiologic point of view, it's very, very unhealthy and in the long term deleterious to your health. And, and you know, it's interesting because you probably heard of this hormone uh, called oxytocin or mm-hmm. the bonding or nurturing or love hormone, where if you actually give it intranasally, it oftentimes has this effect of making you connect or bond with another person. What's interesting, though, is that if you take a use this and have a person who is outside of what you define as your tribe, if you will, it doesn't have the same effect. Hmm. And so this is the danger of tribalism. Yeah. I mean, what I think you and so many others are working on now is taking a clear look at this baggage from evolution and trying to use this new knowledge we have of our brains and bodies to force or prompt to to practice a next stage of evolution where we, as we can, where we can start to move beyond those those instincts that actually bring out the worst in us and that create our problems. That's exactly right because it's like knowledge in general. The mm-hmm. more you know, the more it allows you to respond. And when we understand the nature of what we call cognitive biases, which we have a tendency to fall into, where we respond positively to evidence or statements that support our predetermined uh, or already present attitudes and recognize that that in itself is a problem, then you start seeing things with more clarity. And really what all of this is about in some ways and all of these techniques that Ruth taught me and that that a number of teachers have taught from a variety of traditions is to see ourselves and the world with greater clarity. a short break, more with James Doty. We're putting all kinds of great extras into our podcast feed. Lots of poetry, music, and a new feature, Living the Questions. You can get it all as soon as it's released when you subscribe to On Being on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with James Doty, who's a Stanford brain surgeon and is also on the cutting edge of emerging research of how the brain and the heart talk to each other. 
What he's discovering may have the power to transform not just individual lives, but to reshape what he calls the baggage of evolution, the fight-or-flight response that is linked to violence and tribal conflict. We mentioned Richie Davidson a minute ago, who's at Madison and has done some of these important studies. I'm pretty sure I heard him say, (laughs) but I want to check this out with you, that they're doing studies now practicing compassion and actually seeing the amygdala shrink? Yes. uh, I mean, that's incredible. That should be on the front page of the New York Times, I think. (laughs) No, (laughs) absolutely. And that's the amygdala is the fight or flight place in our brains. Yes, and we see other parts uh, of our brain actually thicken in gray matter with some of these practices. So it is really quite extraordinary In some ways, I guess you could say this is uh, analogous to strengthening certain muscles and uh, allowing others to atrophy. And again, it shows you, and this is what I tell people, is that just like muscles, our mental muscle, if you will, responds to exercise. It's just which exercise you're going to do. And one exercise relates to mindfulness, uh, compassion, loving kindness, having an open heart. And when you strengthen that muscle, the world becomes a vibrant place where you recognize the incredible aspect of humanity that surrounds you in every person, how every person has this incredible potential to to change the world, or you can do a form of exercise that makes you afraid, that makes you pull away, that think makes you think that people are your enemies or that people are out for something. And unfortunately, sometimes it's an active choice, but for many people, they don't even understand that this is happening. I, I'm very intrigued when I, I see you writing about... Um your work as a surgeon operating on people's brains. And um, I've spoken with people across the years, especially people who've had some kind of catastrophic accident or, or disability or a really serious medical condition who talk about the violence of medical treatment, right? That, you know, extreme medicine is, is, is violent. And I mean, you, you, you rip people's skin from their skulls. Um, and yet um, part of your this thing you've learned about calming yourself is to stay very calm even when you might have somebody dying in front of you. So it's a very nuanced kind of compassion. But then I was really touched by the story you told also of um, operating on a four-year-old boy and how the hair has to be cut from his head. And normally that would be something that would just be part of the prep. But you you do it yourself as a ritual, and you save those cuttings for his mother. Yes. Uh, for a child to have to go through the brutality of, of many of our medical practices, especially brain surgery, uh, it almost seems as though it should never occur. And to treat that event or that process as almost something uh, holy or spiritual, I think honors that, if that makes any sense. Mm. And knowing how a mother or a parent is so terrified and afraid about what their child is about to undergo, uh, to give them something that shows that it's not only just the surgery itself and doing an excellent job with that, but just shows the intention of what you're doing in the sense of of taking the time to do this one thing that on one hand may seem fairly simple, but actually in another way shows that you are thinking about all aspects of this from beginning to end mm-hmm. and what it means to the parent and, and to the child. Yeah. Um, so you run this center at Stanford now, and one of your studies, I was just looking at the list of the research that you have going on, um, it's kind of, I want to ask you about this, the studying the, I guess the effects of 
meditation, I suppose, um, adepts versus novices. So, so Richard Davidson started with what they called Olympic meditators who'd meditated 30,000 times or 50,000 hours or 30,000 hours. And I guess novices would be, um, you know, people like me um, who might be called dabblers. Um, there, there were significant, not necessarily completely understood yet, but significant effects, physiological effects of that kind of sustained meditation. What's being learned about the more everyday kind of meditation that, that so many of us are trying to fit into modern lives? Well, I think that's a good point. None of us or very few of us are really going to be able to do 30,000 hours, yeah. much less even 10,000 hours. But what we do know is that even short periods of time where you uh, are attentive, if you will, or mindful and have intention to open your heart, even that has a profound effect. And in fact, even after brief periods of meditation, we actually can study the epigenetic effect of how our genes are, are changing their expression, even with brief periods of meditation in the context of inflammation markers. Mm. And it's extraordinary because even with people who have meditated in this manner for as little as two weeks, you can see effects in regard to their blood pressure, in regard to the release of of, uh, stress hormones, and effects on the immune system. And, you know, one of the big things that people don't appreciate is that a lot of disease is actually a manifestation of inflammation. And that is a manifestation of your immune system not functioning well. And these types of practices can decrease that inflammation. And again, when you do that when you are able to decrease your stress hormones, if you will, down to their baseline level, it has a huge impact. So what happens is that your parasympathetic nervous system is engaged or your vagus nerve or this nerve to your heart when it is... That's how the heart and the brain communicate a lot, right? Exactly. uh When... When you're able to increase your vagal tone through these types of practices, there's a huge, huge benefit in terms of your uh, peripheral physiology and how your body works. And again, even with practices as as short as uh, two weeks of of even Mm -hmm. 15 to 20 minutes, we have found has had significant positive effect on individuals' uh, lives, not only from a physiology point of view, but even subjectively, where they indicate that uh, it just changes how they look at the world and how they respond to the world. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with neurosurgeon James Doty, who also directs Stanford's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. I also want to ask you about some work it looks like you're directly involved in on the convergence between heroism, compassion, and altruism, and that that even including um, gang members. So, so first of all, what, you know, what, what are you talking about when you talk about heroism? Well, this is actually a presumption that given the right circumstance, most people will do the right thing, mm. the majority of people, and that this concept of being a hero as being something that is available and should be embraced by all of us because being a hero doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, you know, jump off a bridge into freezing water to pull somebody out of the water. Hmm. Being a hero can simply recognizing a, a, a situation where somebody 
is at risk and just making the effort to go and just help them. And it could be even uh, seeing a, an elderly person having difficulty crossing the street or seeing a person perhaps being bullied and just intervening. And the physiologic effects that individuals get or what occurs in terms of making them feel good or having the release of this, these hormones associated with reward is actually quite quite amazing. And so you, you've actually worked with gang members on p- creating a different uh, context, a different set of circumstances uh, that makes that more possible for them? Exactly. When you give them instruction and training and to show them a different world and how they do, in fact, have potential, you don't write them off as a gang member Regardless of how many tattoos they have, how threatening they just superficially appear, when you give them the gift of recognizing their humanity, everything changes for so many. And, you know, what's so sad is that you'll see these kids, you know, they may be 18, 19, but when you talk to them and you sit with them and you listen to how much they've suffered and you recognize in many ways they're still children and they're just looking for that person who will... embrace them and love them. It's... It can be just really extraordinary. Yeah, it is. We've just got a few more minutes, but I... So... I was watching a um I was watching a panel. I think it was a sea care conference that you did in 2014. It sounded so interesting. And it was kind of final thoughts. And somebody on the panelist, another scientist who's working in this world of research, you know, said she she said she kind of thinks a um a growth edge for the field is identifying the there's so much being learned about what we can do in terms of fostering compassion and human flourishing with a much richer imagination about what that looks like. But she said, you know, we still need to keep identifying what are the hard, thorny problems we still don't know how to approach uh, in in modern culture for many people. And I wonder how you think about that. What would be those issues, those dynamics for you? Well, I think... uh Actually, we've touched on uh, some of them. One is our nature, if you will, to feel threat and this tendency toward tribalism. Yeah. And I think the other is how do you create uh, sustainable change or habit change? We talked earlier about uh, one of the tendencies also to revert back to our base behavior when we feel threat. And, you know, it's interesting. When you pull all of this information together that we're learning about these different areas and you can consolidate it, it gives you a much clearer picture and actually, I think, an optimistic picture of uh, the possibilities. You know, there's a whole area of interest called neurohacking. I haven't heard of that. Tell me. Oh, (laughs) well, it's this belief that you can actually hack into your brain and change it. And whether it's with drugs or neuroprosthetics or a whole variety of technologies that you could take away or ameliorate some of these negative tendencies we have and promote uh, these other areas that are more positive. As an example, we talked about the amygdala and some of its negative effects. If you could create a drug, an implant, a stimulator that could ameliorate its effects and actually immediately respond when it feels a threat that's not a real threat, then that could change a whole set of interactions that uh, we have. I I feel like we'd. It's hard. Well, I don't know. Maybe this is my lack of imagination. It's hard for me to imagine we could transcend the human condition with implants. But I mean, you know, here's another thing that I think it has run through our conversation. But I want to name it, and you've written this. You know, 
it can hurt to go through life with your heart open. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, you can, we can decide to not be tribal. And, but you, you open yourself to, to more joy and also to pain that you perhaps didn't let yourself feel before. And that, that's something that well, we're going to resist as creatures, I think. Yeah, I mean, most of us have a tendency to desire pleasure rather yeah. than pain. Yeah. What, though, I think anyone who has lived a life which means you have had pain and suffering, is that you realize that there is a gift in the pain and suffering because what it allows you to do is to see the reality that this is part of life and it's part of a meaningful life. And when you're able to take that pain and suffering and use it to not hide from the world, to use it not to be afraid of every interaction, but to use it to say, yes, it is hard sometimes, but I have learned so many lessons and have become more appreciative and have more gratitude and see in so many examples how in the face of the greatest adversity People have shown their greatest humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's when you recognize this that that is when you're most proud of actually being part of the human species. Tell me about studies that are happening now or – I mean, we, this is such a wild frontier of neuroscience and understanding our bodies and brains and the interaction between them. Um, tell me about some of the emerging edges of insight that are intriguing you at the moment. Well, actually, it's interesting because uh, one of the things, and we're actually uh, editing something called the Handbook of Compassion Science, which actually Oxford University Press will be publishing. But one of the concluding chapters that I'm uh, co-authoring is actually the emerging field of artificial intelligence and the impact it's going to have. And what's extraordinary about this emerging field is the recognition, and, and isn't it strange, the recognition that you now have to bring in moral philosophers to interact with the computer scientists. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, because you have to imbue these robots, if you will, with some degree of humanity. And also in the human example, the same type of thing where you have individuals who do not appear to have the capacity to connect with others. Right. To bond and deeply if, like oxytocin. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so on the forefront is the ability to potentially alter this in some manner where you can give people this gift of connection. Now – this heads off to a whole nother area, right? Because if you look <laughs> at you the... might have spouses <laughs> slipping that into their partner's <laughs> drinks. <laughs> I, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, potentially, yes. <laughs> uh, 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 but it actually, it brings up this whole point of who who are we really, right? Yes, yes, it uh, does. And then is it right or is it wrong if we have the ability to change that. To reform them in that way, biologically. Yes. Wow. Exactly. That's amazing. And just as you that. say, is it right or wrong to change your spouse the way they want you right. want them to be? <laughs> yeah. But 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 it does it does raise the possibility that let's say in in the next decades, in this century, we will be forced because of where technology and science are taking us to have to articulate a vision of human normalcy and human flourishing. And I feel like you've you've answered this question in many ways in the course of this of our conversation. But I, I wonder how this work that you do on a day-to-day -day basis um, and what you learn, both personally but also as a scientist, um, how does that continue to kind of infuse and shape the way you move through the world on an everyday basis? Is there, do you see concrete ways that that continues to change you or change you differently? Well, I, I think, um, 
I think there are a couple things. I, I, I think one is that at least what I try to do or what my intention or aspiration yeah. to do is, is to engage people in this open-hearted fashion. And in terms of my own practice with patients, as an example, one of the things that we see with physicians is that when they have a hopeless case or a terminal case, and oftentimes actually neurosurgeons, once that reality is evident, they're gone. Yeah. And one of the things I found for myself is that the greatest learning and wisdom that I often have been privileged to be present with is actually the transition of a person, their death, and uh, not being afraid of, of death. And I think the other aspect is to, at least for me, to appreciate that every day I have the capacity to, through my actions, improve the life of at least one person. And what we forget sometimes is even smiling at another person, which takes very little effort for that person who receives that, it can mean an immense amount. And not to forget that these small little actions, these little ripples, can actually end up creating a tsunami if each of us engage in them. Remember, when a person, and we know this from the science, when a person sees another person engage in a positive behavior, they're many, many times more likely to engage in that behavior themselves. When they see another person act with kindness and with generosity and with gratitude. It becomes infectious, right? It becomes contagious. Exactly. Positive contagion. (laughs) Exactly. Mm. And of course, it can potentially become the opposite. But in the context of the positive, it can become contagious. And I don't know a single person if they knew they had the capacity to create that contagion, would not want to do so. Yeah. And I think having people understand, and this I think has been the theme of our entire conversation, that it's not the circumstance that's creating their emotional response, it is them. And oftentimes we forget that. In my own case as a child, this interaction with this woman, Ruth, did not change my life circumstance. It changed how I emotionally responded yeah. to that circumstance. And each of us has the ability to change how we emotionally respond to our life circumstance and create an environment where we ultimately can flourish and give those around us the opportunity to flourish. Yeah. So, so this is my last question. Um, near the end of your book, you, you make a grand statement. You say, we are at the beginning of an age of compassion. What does that sentence hold for you? What do you see? How do you see that manifesting? What are its components? Well, sure. Uh, I think that, as you know, we had an age of enlightenment, which had a profound effect on our human species. And I believe that with the knowledge that we are gaining through neuroscience, through a variety of technologies, and we're seeing the effect, the positive effect of compassion in little pockets in society and how profound it can be. And again, I believe that as we experience, as we see, as we manifest these little pockets of compassion and caring for the other occurring, it is ultimately going to be recognized that this is the path that will lead us out of darkness into light.
James Doty is a clinical professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University and founding director of CARE, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. His memoir is Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. He's also senior editor of the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Tech Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, and Damon Lee. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.